Welcome to episode 249 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. We are back at it. So some may have known that we were away for a little while, but even while we're away, we will record podcasts. If you and I are together, we are going to talk. And now what we decided is we're going to put a microphone between us. Yes. Yeah. You know, it feels a little weird because we haven't recorded like a normal episode in like it's probably been like three or four weeks now. That's true. Because we didn't record. We had the, the the Two Thieves guys come on and do an episode for us, which was awesome. If you haven't heard it, go back and listen to it. Uh, Brandon and Justin did a phenomenal job kind of unpacking the SBC, what it is. Um, and we appreciated them giving us a little bit of break so we didn't have to worry about it on a travel day and stuff. Uh, and then last week we recorded with the Lutheran guys that we uh, abducted in Ocean Grove, New Jersey. <laughs> so that was fun. Uh, but like it's been a while. I feel like it's been a long time since we've recorded a normal episode. We're back into the rhythm. And I want to thank the two thieves guys for jumping in and doing an excellent episode. They summarized everything that happened in the SBC. You got the experts there. So go back and listen to that. And I appreciate that they undertook the whole Reformed Brotherhood greeting in the beginning. Including I know. Like the Hey Brother. It was really impressive. Yeah, I got a few emails from people that were like, do you know that these guys stole your podcast? And I was like, <laughs> I gave them I gave them permission to do that. So yeah, they, they, they had a lot of fun. I, I really appreciated them jumping in and, and taking it seriously and, and getting after it. And it was a good, I mean, I learned a lot about the SBC, things that Me I didn't too. really know or understand. So if you are interested in church polity and the different versions and variations that are out there, and you should be, go and check out that episode. And then last week we talked about uh, some Lutheran distinctives. We had Chad Bird and Eric Sorensen, who are um, figures and authors and podcasters with 1517.org. We had them on and we just talked about what, what Lutheranism is a little bit and, and what kinds of things the Reformed uh, faith, the Reformed tradition can sort of learn from some of the things that the Lutherans do different. And it was just a lot of fun. Those guys are great. It was. It was fantastic. And they set a record, and that record was they were the first non-Calvinists, yeah. so to speak, to be on our podcast. So I'm already designated Eric and Chad as our Lutherans in residence. I hope that's okay. So yeah. we'll go back to them. I hope that we'll create a partnership with them because as we talked about, we want to make sure that we're in many ways dialoguing with brothers and sisters across the theological spectrum. And this was just one episode in our goal to do that. And I think in many ways to make sure that we're appropriately engaging and understanding what others believe, yeah. especially in orthodoxy. So that was a great exercise, but more than that, I started as an exercise. Those are great brothers. I yeah. love them. And I think you're going to hear more from them in the future. And in part, that's what's some ways shaping our episode today, because we're going to talk a little bit about worship on the Lord's Day, the elements, the attributes, what happens, and how there are some distinctives, some of which came out of that conversation. So we will get to that in a bit. But before we do, we're returning to everybody's favorite thing, which is affirmations and denials. So what are you affirming on this week's episode? Yeah, so this is a podcast um, that I'm going to recommend true. here. The, yes, this is a podcast, full stop. But my affirmation is a recommendation of a podcast that is not this podcast. Um, 
and it's called the Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. And it, it it's not a Ooh. it's not a comfortable podcast to listen to, but I think it's instructive. And uh, as you might surmise from the name of the podcast, it's about the rise and fall of Mars Hill. And um, so right now, I think they have three or four episodes out. They're still very much looking at kind of the rise part of Mars Hill and and how things came to be the way they are. And they actually start before, you know, like Mars Hill was even a thing. And they start with kind of like this idea of the megachurch as sort of this distinct form of polity that's different than what the country and the world had really seen before. So it's produced by Christianity Today, which tends to be a little bit more liberal and a little bit more woke than I'm comfortable with. So take that with a grain of salt and read through those lenses or listen through those lenses, through those headphones, whatever you would use to filter (laughs) audio um, or to interpret audio. You have to recognize, like they they aren't coming from a conservative, conf- you know, reformed confessional perspective, so they're not going to say things the way we would. They're not going to, you know, they're not going to address the issues that we might think they should. But overall, it's a very well produced, very good podcast that I think, particularly people who are reformed, and particularly people who are either involved in the world of podcasting or are influenced by listening to podcasts and might have a couple of their, you know, their favorite celebrity pastors that they listen to sermons from. I think particularly that group needs to hear what's going on because as we talked about in the church discipline um, episodes that we've done just recently, a lot of the success of people like Mark Driscoll and their ability to sort of just jump right back into ministry after these catastrophic, you know, falls. Um, a lot of that is due to the fact that they have this audience and support from people that is divo- that are divorced from the local church. So Mark, Mark can go back to podcasting and putting his sermons out there and teaching without missing a beat. And that's because most of his platform was not actually the people who were living and, and worshiping at Mars Hill. Right. So I don't want to I don't want to go too far into that. You can go back and listen to our church discipline episodes. We talk a little bit about that. But this is a phenomenal podcast. Um, it's it's a hard listen. It it it's going to cause us to ask questions of ourselves and of our church polity and of our perspective on church discipline and all those things that we really need to ask. So I would commend it to all of our listeners. That's great because I think that sometimes we think we have all the answers to issues around church discipline, or yeah. we know how we would handle it if we were in that situation. It's rarely that clean, yeah. and the Bible gives us profound guidance and the support of God himself in those situations, those hard situations. He's concerned about his church. That's something that we enumerated in those episodes. I think it's helpful to listen to things like that because in the pain, it helps us to be self-reflective about the fact that we are also fallen people. And so we just need to be careful. It's just easy to take the high road in your kind of like ex post analysis of that. Whereas we need to be asking like, what am I doing in my local church to make sure that I'm supporting my pastors? I'm seeking sound doctrine that I'm after the gospel, that everything I'm doing is in service of the gospel. All these things tend to be drawn out when we listen to these painful stories. If anything, it kind of is like a cautionary tale, isn't it? It's like, you should, and I think that's something that we talked about even last week with Chad and Eric, this idea that they brought up that in reform circles, there is this sometimes this cult of personality among right. certain preachers or teachers, which seems absent or foreign in the Lutheran tradition. tradition. And I almost said traducan for some reason. Traducan. And that, I think, is something that should give us pause. It's not necessarily that those things are entirely harmful. It's helpful to have leaders 
that are preaching that have influence and that have some sway. But at the same time, when we divorce those, like you said, from responsibility and accountability in the local church, then it's possible we strayed really too far, even if modern media will allow us or allow a person to have that kind of reach. We should say, is that helpful? Is it possible? It's harmful. Yeah. And so I think that there can be this confusion between ecclesiology that happens at the local church level and one that's like a faux version of that because it happens online and it has yeah. like this sense that it's a church, but it's not really. Yeah. So listening to something like that, even though it's painful, it's probably like a good pain, right? Like you're listening to it. Yeah. I haven't listened to it yet. I didn't even know it existed. So that's, that's amazing that somebody talk about like a podcast for everything. And a podcast for everyone. Yeah. That's like a really niche podcast right there. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's, there was a one segment in, I think it was either episode three or two. I don't remember, but it, it, um, the episode title is called, do you read the Bible Ringo or something like that? They have these like clever titles that I think probably tie into like statements that Mark Driscoll made. I mean, I, I never was a huge follower of Mark Driscoll. I listened to Mars Hill sermons for a while. How dare you? But <laughs> I did hear that <laughs> sermon or at least saw that video clip. Um, but there's a quote from Mark Driscoll and recognizing that like, it's a quote that's necessarily out of context because the entire message he gave wasn't there. But he says he's talking about the early days of Mars Hill and it started. And he says something along the lines of, I had never been, I wasn't licensed or ordained. I have never been, I'd never been a member of a church or a pastor in a church. So I thought I might as well start my own. And like Mm -hmm. that sets the entire trajectory, that perspective that he was saying tongue in cheek, but it only works because it was, it was true. And it was really 25 years old when he planted what became Mars Hill. It was a, a small Bible study. He was saying it tongue in cheek, but it was rooted in reality. Well, I remember when I was in high school, the big thing that people would say about like the Christian faith was like, you can't talk me out of it because I wasn't talked into it. Well, that same kind of like principle applies with Mark Driscoll. Like you can't tell Mark that he can't, you know, he can't preach and run a church because no one ever told him he could. So like he never was authorized or ordained to be a pastor and to run it to, to shepherd and rule over a church as a teaching or ruling elder, right. To use Presbyterian language or as a pastor or elder to use more kind of evangelical language. He was never told that he could do that. He was never authorized to do that by a valid body. And so it's no surprise that like when, when the church he's a part of says like, you're fired more or less, they didn't actually fire him. But when they say like, you can't do this this way anymore, he just says, peace out. I'm, I'm doing this because God called me to do this. So Mark is a perfect example of someone who has what he believes is an inward call to preach the gospel and to, to be a pastor of a church, but no matching outward call from the church to do that. In both Mars Hill and in his new church in, in Arizona, which I think is called Trinity, the Trinity Church or something like that, he formed, he formed this church and called himself to be the pastor with no, no outward call from any sort of any sort of recognized Christian body. So I don't want to belabor that. That could turn into its own episode and maybe someday it will, but someday probably it will. Um, but yeah, check it out. It's it's important too, because it looks as though all of the things that went wrong at Mars Hill uh, are starting to go wrong with his church in Arizona. And the, the main difference is that his church in Arizona doesn't have members. There's no membership for people who are attending and there's no elders. There's no elder board. So Mark, Mark, in the podcast, there's some quotes from people where he says, like, I, I learned a lot from what happened. And if things go south, I'm not going down the way I did last time. That's a paraphrase, but there's direct quotes from him that are to that effect. 
he now has created a situation where even though before he had very limited accountability to 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 check him he now has no accountability um there's nobody that could tell him to stop there's nobody that could do that the only thing that could happen is everyone in the church could leave and he would have right. no more no more people there to fund his project basically so Boundaries check it out friend yeah check it out it's a good podcast it, we need to listen to it we need to hear it and we need to think and reflect about the theology that is enabling and causing mark to be able to do what he's doing and what he's done and this is like a family issue, isn't it? Like we, you and I have talked about this, like these things are worth investing yeah. in. They're worth hearing the hard things, taking some time to process. And when I say process, like actually thinking about this, like taking some time to sit alone and think about even like your own role in the church, yeah. how your church handled these things, because this is the family of God. And we ought to be serious about dealing with family issues in the same way. Like we're, we're serious about our own families yeah. and processing dynamics. This is in some ways a private conversation but it also means that it's worth talking about right. and we shouldn't just shy away from it. We shouldn't just say that's somebody else's issue. We really need to be about the family of God. Like the bride of Christ is, you know, something of course that God has set apart for his own glory. And at the same time, we bear responsibility for making sure that doctrinally, doctrinally, theologically, that we are pursuing that in a way that honors him. And it's yeah. possible to do it in a way where it honors us. And so we just need to like check our egos from time yeah. to time. I, I find this in my own life. We really need to take a little bit of inventory. And I think drawing out from these kind of podcasts is helpful in that. It's painful. It might be weird. It might be uncomfortable. You might be thinking, what does that have to do with me? Yeah. It actually has everything to do with all of us if yeah. we're claiming ourselves as followers of Jesus. Yeah. Well, what about you? I, I mean, I know what you're affirming because we've talked, we actually <laughs> talked about this, but why don't you share with our audience what you're affirming today? Right on. So I'm coming on the heels of, again, like just a wonderful time of conversation with our Lutherans in residence, Eric Sorensen and Chad Bird. And because both of them are authors, I've, of course, been backtracking and reading the stuff that they've written. And so I'm affirming this week the things they have written because there's so much in there that's good. And of course, there is some Lutheran theology that's embedded in some of that. But I also think that's actually really helpful for people to read, to understand, to process to understand what they believe themselves. Yeah. Um, but besides that, in particular, I'm going to go with The Christ Key, which is Chad Bird's new book. It was just released this past week. The subtitle is Unlocking the Centrality of Christ in the Old Testament. I think we can both agree that Chad is like an epic Old Testament yeah. theologian and philosopher. And so he does a great job, a fantastic job even, of going through the Old Testament in new ways for me, at least, where even though you think you know when he wasn't that like a it's not like an old MTV show like you think you know the but you have no idea. I don't know. It feels like a reality show. You think you know, but you have no idea really of all the places, all the grand weaving that God is doing with Christ in the Old Testament. He just draws that out in yeah. really ways that lead you to doxology. So they have three books, of course, between the two of them. One is the Christ Key, which is unlocking the centrality of Christ in the Old Testament. Chad Bird also has a book. It's a self-autobiography, basically. It's about his self-autobiography? An autobiography. That's like when it's someone called, says they're going to the ATM machine. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. I do find that troubling. Yeah. That does annoy me. That's a pet peeve of mine, financially speaking. <laughs> let's do an Thank episode you. on that. Yeah, let's redundant, do that. Redundant uh, words with common yes. Uh, Sorry, this, this is a yeah self-biography or an autobiography. It's called Night Driving, Notes from a Prodigal Son, Notes from a Prodigal Soul, excuse me. 
I also grabbed this on Kindle like last week and already read through it. It's an, it's an amazing read. It's about his story, which is tragic, real, raw. I think you'll be challenged by this. Incidentally, it's $1.99 on Kindle. So to yeah. the Kindle reader, it's super affordable. And then the last book would be, what is it called? Scandalous Stories? Scandalous Stories. <laughs> so <laughs> I don't know. It's, is... it's some book title that we're going to, yeah. No, it's called yeah. Scandalous Stories. Which is a collaborative work between Eric and Chad. So here's the thing. I'm partly recommending this because we talked about them in that previous episode, and we're going to actually give a copy of each of those away because they we find them so good and so profitable. So this affirmation is also an introduction into saying that you all could also affirm them because you could get them free of charge. So how are people going to get the opportunity to do that. Yes, we're going to do this a little bit different than most uh, contests that we've done. So you're going to tell us which of these resources you would like to potentially win by doing a particular thing. So if you would like to win a copy of Scandalous Stories, which is written by Daniel Emery Price and Eric Sorensen, Chad did the foreword, uh, you can uh, go to Twitter and share the podcast. So don't don't share. I mean, you could share a particular episode. Share an actual link to our podcast, and then take a screenshot of that link, or or take a screenshot of that and email it to info at reformbrotherhood.com. And you're going to use the subject line contest entry Twitter. And all that does is tell us that this is an email that has to do with this contest instead of one of the other, um, you know, dozens of emails that we get every couple of weeks. That dozens. sounds dozens, dozens and dozens. <laughs> Uh, so that's that's for the scandalous stories, which is a commentary, a sort of commentary on the parables. If you'd like to win Night Driving, which is the autobiography that Jesse just talked about, you will do the same thing on Facebook. So share a copy, uh, share a link to this episode, to your favorite episode, to the podcast itself, to reformbrother.com and Patreon, something having to do with the podcast. And uh, then take a screenshot of that and email it to us at info at Reform Brotherhood. Subject line, contest entry, Facebook. I know we're getting real clever here. And because we think that the Christ key is probably going to be the most popular, we want you to do something that is, I think, will help us out the most. So everybody knows we're not hiding anything. Contests on podcasts usually have to do with helping spread awareness. And this is no different. So if you're listening to this uh, we think that you probably like the show and want to help us spread awareness, but we also want to give you a book. So if you want to uh, win the Christ key, go to iTunes, uh, I suppose it's called Apple Podcasts now, and leave a review of the show. Um, tell us what your favorite thing is. If you have criticism and you want to give us a one star, that's okay. You can do that too. Um, you can do that and tell us what you hate about the show, whatever you want to do. Uh, go ahead and do that and leave a review and then uh, send us a screenshot of that review to the info at reformbrotherhood.com. And if you'd like a chance to win any one of these, you can do all three. You can only win once. So if you happen to win uh, twice, then we're just going to pick one and use you as the winner for that. Uh, and then we'll just redraw the other one. And we'll um, what we'll do is we will have this contest go through the last episode in August. So that will be on the 27th. Uh, so your last opportunity to do this will be to email us sometime before uh, August 28th. So if you email us on Saturday, August 28th or earlier with a screenshot of your entry, which is a, a link on Facebook, a link on Twitter, or a review on, um, on Apple Podcasts, 
uh, then we will do the drawing when we record the episode, which we should be recording on August 29th, and we'll announce the winners on uh, September 3rd. So there's enough time for you to do it, share it with your friends, make sure they know about the show, and then you can have a chance to win one of these great uh, copies, and then we will be in touch with the winners um, once we have made that drawing. Sounds great. Let's move on then to denials. What are you denying? I just want to say before we move on, figuring out how to do this contest has probably been more planning than we have done for the entire podcast, like from episode one until now. So I know it's complicated. We probably could have made it simpler, but meh, why not? Listen, we don't mess around. This is, you know, grace is free. Freely you have received, freely you should give three books, three book opportunities to win three free, amazing books. Is the number three, is that coincidental? I don't think so. No, I don't think there is. Trinity. Okay, so what are you denying? (laughs) So I'm going to deny something that I'm calling the evolution of the gaps argument. And this is obviously a play on words of the, uh, the famous God of the gaps argument, which atheists are so keen to throw at us. And the God of the gaps argument is more or less that when Christians can't explain a particular thing uh, that they just say, well, that must, it must mean God did it. And there are certainly people who use that argument and there are, that, that is certainly not a good argument. It's not really accurate of what most Christians are doing when they sort of attribute unknown processes or unknown things to God. And it certainly shouldn't be what Christians are doing. But the evolution of the gaps argument is something that I thought about. I've heard it before, but I thought about it this morning. So in New Hampshire, I think most places in North America have these. We have these little things called grass spiders, and they're they're big. They're maybe the size of like a like a sand dollar that you find at the beach, or like a um, like a coaster that you you'd have on your your counter when their legs are all spread out. They're about that big, and what they do is they make these platform webs on the tops of grass stalks. So when you walk out in the morning and there's dew, you can see all these little platform webs that serve no biological purpose that any scientific research or person that I've ever seen or talked to can explain why they do this. And so in evolutionary theory, which whether you believe, uh, whether you buy into the hypothesis of evolutionary theory or not, this, I think this is something we all can get behind and understand doesn't work. In, in evolutionary theory, there has to be an evolutionary explanation for just about everything. So the grass spiders, we don't understand why, but there must be some some advantage in reproduction for them to make these webs because it costs them energy. They have to eat additional food. It takes them time and exposes them to predators. There must be some advantage that they gain in order to reproduce that drives them to do this. Well, that's the evolution of the gaps argument, right? It's It's we don't understand it, so it must be evolutionarily advantageous. Well, we don't, we don't know that it is. We have no reason to think that it is. We don't know what it does. We don't know why they do it. It doesn't help them feed. It doesn't help them reproduce. These webs literally dissolve in the sun when the sun gets hot in the day. Um, instead, as a Christian, what I can do is I can look at it and I can actually say, uh, maybe I don't understand exactly why God has done this, but God has created these spiders. These, are, these little webs that they make can be quite beautiful. And they, they right. capture something about God's creative nature and they express that to us in this little act that these little brown spiders that basically don't do much. I mean, they, they eat other, but they eat bugs like all spiders do. They don't do anything really for the ecosystem. They're just there and they make these webs that all they are, are they're interesting and pretty to look at for a little bit of time and then they fade away. 
And, and that's just one of those things, one of those examples in this evolution of the gaps argument that I see. If you ask a real hardcore evolutionary biologist, why do they make that? They're going to say something like, well, we don't know, but evolution has driven them to do this. Evolution has right. caused them to do this. There's some evolutionary advantage. So I'm just denying this evolution of the gaps argument that I see. And, and it's ironic because the people who uh, are so quick to pounce on what they see as the God of the gaps argument are also the same people that use this evolution of the gaps argument. And right. this, I guess you used to be like hashtag adventures in Romans one, because we see this anytime you watch a nature documentary, they can't, yes. they can't accept yes. or they can't do anything except to use design language mm-hmm. or intentionality in the universe language, right? They attribute it to the universe the universe has has caused this animal to act in this way, or evolution has caused this animal to act in this way. They have to use design language. They can't escape it. Um, but at the same time, the second that a Christian says, I'm not really sure why God did it. I'm sure he has good reasons. Uh, and, and that's, you know, that's why this thing exists. That becomes all of a sudden the evolution of the gap or the, the God of the gaps argument. So that's my right. denial. Um, I don't, I don't, I, I think there are serious flaws with the evolutionary hypothesis, both methodologically, philosophically, scientifically. Um, that's not really about this. Like, I think you could hold a, an evolutionary view without use, without appealing to this evolution of the gaps argument, maybe not consistently, but people, some people do. But this is just a an on its face fallacious argument that I run into pretty much any time you watch any sort of scientific. I mean, it's been rampant when we're talking about COVID, how COVID mutates and its it evolutionary advantage for this variation right. or that variation or whatever. So, yeah, that's, that's great. my denial. I didn't I didn't expect that. And actually, in the effort to move us along a little bit, I'm just going to go along with that. Okay, <laughs> I had something else. I had something else in mind, but surprisingly. The spider thing and your connection to that as like, again, deny against this God of the gap argument. Um, so we have a spider that is hanging out in between our window panes and you've also had this experience. Do you mm-hmm. remember what that spider's name was? I don't remember. Was it Sammy? Oh, Sammy. That's right. It was Sammy. <laughs> Sammy was huge. Yeah. So maybe many people, many listeners have had this experience where if you've looked at a window somewhere, especially one that's like in a particular location or it's shaded or it's protected between like a screen and the pane, you might get a spider hanging out there. We have that. And I've watched this spider grow. And I'm ashamed to say it at first I was like, yeah, it's cool. He's just chilling. And then once he gets big enough, I'm like, okay, this is unacceptable because if this dude comes into my house, like this is going to cause like all kinds yeah. of problems. So I'm ashamed to say and this is, again, just related to your your whole denial here is that the other day I got some bug spray and he's a really smart spider. He's gotten big. I have named him Sammy in honor of the spider that you guys had actually in the church. It was yeah. in the church, we right? Two between, of them we named Sammy. Yeah. And they were these people should know they were large. I don't mm-hmm. know if you've ever seen like a grass type spider or just a large spider. I'm sure they're harmless, but they still are like freaky. God yeah. is amazing in his creation. And some of that is being fearfully and wonderfully made and spiders are that way. So this spider was growing and I said to my wife, that's it. It's, it's <laughs> I've got to deal with this. So the thing was, it was near my back door. And if the back door slammed, he would run away into like kind of a crevice yeah. inside the window. So I sneaked out. I had some bug spray and I came at him. I hit him. But he, of course, he's so fast, immediately ran away, retreated into his own sacred, safe place. And I was pretty sure that I got him because two days later, 
he hadn't come back and he built a massive web in between the window and the screen. So part of me was like, this is also like a massive web. I'm basically just trying to justify, I guess, me killing this spider. So he didn't come back. I vacuumed out then everything. I was like, yay, he's gone. I didn't find him. There was actually the body of another spider, which was concerning to me, but like I vacuumed everything up. And so I said to my wife, oh, it's just so nice to look out the window. This massive spider web isn't there anymore. I've cleaned everything. And if you've ever cleaned like a spider web, you'll be surprised. You might have seen like how incredibly strong they are, like, yeah. like especially in a screen. I really just scrubbed them out. I did all that work and I was so excited. Four days later, I look over <laughs> And he's back. Spider's back. back. Oh. And he's, he's built a bigger web. And I feel like it happened overnight as if he was like, if you want some, come and get some. Yeah. So currently right now we are in a stare down. He's back. Apparently I didn't hit him enough. And at this point I feel like he should just keep going. Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, totally only tangential, tangentially related. And then we should talk about you know, Lutherans and how they're wrong about the Lord's Supper or whatever we're going to talk about today. Um, <laughs> spiders, they did experiments with spiders. And have you ever watched a spider like build a web? Sometimes like you catch them when they're building a web and it's very methodical and very Yeah, patterned. it's cool. They did a study where they gave spiders different drugs and the webs they produced were like radically oh, I've seen different. This. Yes. Uh, so like they gave, they gave, and it's, it's funny because it's become sort of an internet trope because the effects on these spiders are like the exact same thing as it happens to humans. So like they gave them alcohol and like the web was all crooked or they gave them like psychotropic drugs and the webs were like erratic and like strange and like made these weird fractal patterns and things like the kinds of things that people who are on like you LSD had me at fractal and they gave the drugs marijuana and the spider like made half a web and then went to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> that last one might be made up for the internet, but I guess it wouldn't surprise me all that much. <laughs> so that's as good as any a segue yes. into what we're really after in this particular episode, which is in some ways like a, a kind of a debriefing of conversations with Chad and Eric. But one of the things that they brought up that I think was lovely in the course of our conversation is the ways in which we approach worship on the Lord's Day. And yes. in particular, what we all might consider the zenith of the Lord's Day worship. And I think this is a great question because maybe there are some of us that don't think about, well, what is the peak? What is the, what gives, has primacy over all other things when we gather together on the Lord's Day? And one of the things that they posited was that it was the sacrament of taking the Lord's Supper that was the high point. And they did this amazing explanation of how in Lutheran tradition, that's why you'll find the sermon has a, to some degree, a lesser place. It's still important. Right. But if you were to just take a look at the Lord's Day and segment everything or decompose everything, create discrete intervals, that the sermon would take up a smaller percentage. And what they said it by way of their perception was that for Reformed people, the sermon is a greater percentage, a greater portion, right. a greater premacy, greater importance. And so I thought it would be helpful just for us to talk about that and to maybe do a little bit of self-reflection of how we understand worship on the Lord's Day and the relative components that are contained within it. Yeah. Just to sort of set the stage, um, Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 21, uh, sections three and four really have to do with prayer. And section five uh, would kind of expand and give some specific elements or some, spe some specific components of what worship, what it constitutes worship. And it says, uh, quote, the reading of the scriptures with godly fear, the sound preaching and conscionable hearing of the word in obedience unto God 
with understanding, faith, and reverence, singing of psalms with grace in the heart, as also the due administration and worthy receiving of the sacraments instituted by Christ are all parts of the ordinary religious worship of God. And then it gives a few other things that are are elements of worship but are not ordinarily done, things like fasting, taking vows, those kinds of things, which are done kind of on special occasions. So what that leaves us with is the elements of worship in the Reformed tradition, prayer, the, the reading of scripture, which is distinct from the preaching and hearing, which is seen as a single act. Preaching right. uh, without hearing is not an element of worship. Preaching with hearing is an element of worship. So the the preacher and the person receiving the sermon, those are those both things are are necessary. Um, and then uh, the administration of the sacraments, those are the things that are included. Some people would include uh, giving of tithes and offer, offerings, even though that's not listed here. So so we have to recognize that because the Reformed hold this regulative principle of worship, which we we've talked about extensively in the past and we touched on last week. Not only are we obligated to not do the things that God has not commanded, we are also obligated to do all the things that God has commanded. Right and so identifying what it is that those things God has commanded are is important for Reformed Christians. Because like I said, it, it, you know, when you talk about the second commandment, um, the, the second commandment, what's required in the second commandment is the observing, receiving, and keeping pure and entire all such religious worship and ordinances right. as God hath commanded in his word. I don't know the number on that because I'm, I'm having trouble with numbers, but that's that's the Westminster Shorter Catechism's response to what the second commandment is. And the second commandment is essentially the regulative principle. So when, when, we, when we look at this, we have to start our conversation and frame it by saying, as Reformed Christians, we don't have, we don't really have the liberty uh, because of what we believe to be true about how God orders the worship of the church, we don't have the liberty to just remove elements of worship haphazardly or permanently. There might be a time, a church that has no no musicians in the church, nobody that can carry a tune or lead a, lead a song. Maybe for a little while you don't have musical worship because you don't have anybody that can sing. You don't have anybody that can do that. Um, you know, there are probably some churches out there that are still a little bit uncomfortable with distributing uh, food and drink to eat because of the pandemic. Um, so they, they may for due season and for a uh, valid, you know, reasonable purpose, they may take an element and, and withdraw it for a time. But the decision to kind of like permanently say, like, well, we're just not going to do baptism anymore. There are weird churches out there that don't do baptism. The, the reformed position would be, we don't really have the liberty to do that. And right. then the flip side is we don't have the liberty to add things to the service that are elemental to worship that are uh, not expressly commanded in God's word. And that's very different than the Lutheran perspective that was communicated by our guests last week and that we've articulated in the past that we've called the normative principle, right. normative principle. I added a syllable oh. there. <laughs> the regulative principle of grammar means that I can't add syllables that are not expressly commanded by the dictionary. That was fantastic. I, I love that setting because I think I've used this example before we see the shadows of this in our own human relationships. And so in some ways we can extrapolate it by way of examples, how we understand God. So even if we didn't have the scriptures, which I think expressly communicate to us the ways in which God desires to be worshiped. And in point of fact, like going back again to like our wonderful Lutheran brothers, like they did a fantastic job, especially Chad Bird in understanding how the old Testament informs how we worship in right. this new Testament period. And so to that end, what we find is that just like in your normal relationships day to day, your friends, your family, your loved ones, your spouses, I always use the example of when it's somebody else's birthday, 
they get to dictate how they want to be honored and appreciated. And that's because your goal on that day in particular is to emphasize how special and acclaimed they are. You are celebrating their existence. Right. And so in the same way, God has the right and the authority to say, this is how I ought to be worshiped. So it doesn't matter like whether or not you want to try to employ some kind of tactic or strategy that you think will bring more people in front of God. That is not his concern. He gets to dictate. And so it's within that setting that the Reformed tradition brings forward. These then are the essential elements that God has given us. Prayer, hearing of the word, the preaching of the word. We're drawing all of that from the scriptures. So we should probably just get to, at some point, I'll just do it now, Romans 10, because I'm sure people are like screaming, why have you not brought up Romans 10? You know, this idea of that, that's kind of the quintessential passage where both Paul is quoting from Isaiah, actually, and he's saying, faith comes through hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So you're going to find that in the Reformed tradition, there is a preeminence with this activity because the best part of the sermon is the scripture itself. And so all the more better when there's like a reading of the scripture, and then there is a proclamation of that scripture, which hopefully is exegetical in its nature. But beyond that, what we're saying is, we, I think we've been outspoken about, like the beauty of God's word is you just let it go. Right. And it does exactly, it accomplishes exactly the thing that it was intended to do because it is empowered by the Holy Spirit in its authoring and also in its application. And so we're going to find that we wait that particularly on the Lord's day. It's not that, I would say that we're not saying, it's not that the the sacraments, if we use that language, are of lesser importance per se. It's that we are trying to make sure that we're honoring God. And what God has made clear is that this faith, the faith that is enabled and empowered is regenerated by the Holy Spirit that points to Jesus Christ and to Father as the, the God, the Father as the author, that all of this comes through the hearing. So if this is like, I, I don't want to like be deconstructionist, but if that is the equation in human terms, why would we not follow along right. then with all of the attributes of that equation? Does that make sense? Yeah. And one, you know, one of the things is, you know, it's interesting talking, it was interesting talking to the Lutheran guys, um, not just on the air, but a little bit, you know, a little bit off the air. Reformed folks tend to be, I think, more aware of what's going on and what other traditions think because we study that stuff. We, we, we study systematic theologies and a good systematic theology presents not only the position of the tradition that it's written from within, but also other positions. You know, you read Mike Horton's systematic theology. He's going to give you kind of like a breakdown of all the different views and and then he's going to critique some of them and commend some of them. The Lutheran tradition doesn't do that so much. So it's funny. If you listen, you actually heard Chad say like, well, I don't really know enough about what reform people think to, to say what's different, but here's what we believe. And, and what I think, you know, is, is different. One of the things that's different is when Luther, and I think by extension Lutherans, when they talk about the word of God or the gospel, particularly talk about the word of God, they, they mean they, they're talking about two different things, right? There's the word of God as like the scriptures as a whole. And then there's also the word of God as like this particularly efficacious, um, application of God's word. Right. And so that in, in part, when, when the reform talk about preaching the word of God, what they're talking about is preaching the entire Bible. And that's not to say that Lutherans don't do that in their own way, but we're talking about doing it in a different way. So Lutherans do believe in verbal plenary, um, 
inspiration. So every word is inspired, but they, they come to the scriptures in a very different sense. That's why you don't hear the same kind of exegeticals. Let's dig in and go word by word, verse by verse through each, you know, through each section and passage of the scripture. You don't really hear that same kind of preaching coming out of Lutherans. What you do hear is that the word is effectual in a different yes. way than the reformed think of it as. So, so when Luther, and this is this comes down to the differing views between Luther and Zwingli on the Lord's Supper, and you heard it come out of chat. Jesus says, "This is my body," so it is his body. And I remember I when I was in a Lutheran church in Minneapolis, I had a pastor who said, "You know, it's not when we say that God can't lie, we don't necessarily mean that He can't say something that's untrue." What we mean is that when God says something, it becomes true. And so he used the example of if God said all dogs have pink spots. Well, if I say that, that's a lie. But if God says that, then reality changes to conform itself to his word. That's a very Luther kind of thing to say. You know, when Luther recovered this idea that justification was a forensic declaration, the right. reason that it's not a legal fiction is because when God says this person is just or this person is justified, it becomes reality. It's a sort of an early nascent form of speech act theory that when God says it, it becomes real. And that's that's why the the emphasis on the Lord's Supper as a visible word for the Lutherans. The Lord's Supper is kind of the most visible, the most effectual proclamation of the gospel. It's the most effectual word. Luther talked about how the, the Lord's Supper is a visible word. So both traditions tie preaching and sacrament together to each other. They both tether them together. You know, if it, the difference for both traditions between eating a piece of bread with a fellow Christian and taking the Lord's Supper with a fellow Christian is predominantly found in the fact that the Lord's Supper is accompanied by preaching. Where it's different is that for the Lutheran, that Lord's Supper is effectual, uh, not quite ex opera operato the way that the, the Roman Catholics would say, right. but something a lot closer close. to that than we would feel comfortable with. So so no matter who you are, when you eat that bread, if it is the Lord's Supper, you're you're eating the Lord's body and, and blood, you, you, whether you're an unbeliever or not. For the Reformed, you have to join faith to that in order for it to be the Lord's body and right. the Lord's Sorry. blood. My phone, my watch really wants to know about this. Um, you have to join that with faith. In the Lutheran tradition, it doesn't quite work that way because it is the Lord's body, and, and that's not dependent on anything in us. Right. We would say it's not dependent on anything in us in a sort of a different way, um, but that's why they're more comfortable with less preaching and more sacrament and making the sacrament more significant than the preaching because it's all preaching, but the sacrament is the most effectual preaching that there yes. is. Baptism right. is a more effectual uh, pr proclamation of the gospel for the Lutheran than preaching itself is, because baptism always brings about regeneration for them. It's not baptismal regeneration in the Roman Catholic sense, but it is a form of baptismal regeneration. I think for the Reformed, because we have this passage, and I'm not going to, I don't want to go into all the like, well, this is why they're wrong, but the reason we as Reformed people, want to emphasize the preaching of the word is because this passage exists, right? Because right. it's by the hearing of the word that yes. faith comes to be. And then by that faith, when we partake of the sacrament, by that faith, we are feasting on Christ. Right. We are drinking his blood. We are being washed and cleansed in baptism. I know, I know you know, every, every uh, credo Baptist in the audience is like, yeah, but like there has to be that element of faith that's joined to the sacrament in order for it to be effectual. 
right? Yes. So for us, the preaching of the word, uh, it, it precludes the validity of the sacrament. So of course we're going to emphasize the preaching of the word, because if you don't preach the word or if the person who you're preaching the word to, so let, let's construct this scenario. An unbeliever comes into your church on Sunday morning, and it's the first Sunday of the month when you're going to celebrate communion. And throughout the sermon, the Holy Spirit creates faith in that person. They become regenerate and they come right. to the Lord's table. That person is as much partaking of the Lord's Supper as the person who's been a Christian for 50 years is. Exactly. That same person who, who hears the same sermon does not come to faith, but somehow still thinks they need to come forward and take the Lord's Supper is, is just eating a piece of bread and just what, drinking what? A, a glass of juice or wine, right? For the Lutheran... That person may reject the message, but when they come forward to take the bread, they are still, they're still right. taking, they're still eating the Lord's body and drinking the Lord's blood. And if they, if they, if this is a baptism Sunday, they come forward and be baptized, even if they don't believe, they're still being regenerated in a certain right. sense. And, and so that's why they emphasize those sacraments, I think, in the Lord's service and the Lord's day a little bit more in a different way than, than the Reformed do. And I think we can get behind the sense of like wanting to emphasize the power of those things, right? right. But there is a prerequisite. I think that's basically what we're saying, right. that the way in which God works is to instill that faith. And where does that faith come from? It comes from the preaching. So right. that this is why we just have like, a, I don't want to say it's like a different emphasis, but I think we understand these things in like a temporal, like logical sense in a different way. Right. And I think that that's really helpful to deconstruct because once you see that, I think then you'll start to understand, okay, this is why we have different emphases. And even in the midst of that, we of course can have good Christian fellowship and communion, right. no pun intended, by trying to understand a process, why we believe these things differently. But what you saw in those gentlemen was a heart that was concerned for the gospel. Right. So what they're saying is like, well, this is how the gospel goes forth and is effective and as efficacious. What we're saying is, well, we're looking at Paul's example here. We're saying that he seems to set forth this primacy of hearing, that hearing through the word of Christ and that Christ doing that work is what sets up and makes all those subsequent things efficacious. And why would it not be that way? Because God is not offering in himself this kind of universal pardon yeah. that's somehow manifested in baptism or the Lord's Supper but that it must be irrevocably joined with faith and the faith comes through hearing and the hearing through the preaching. Yeah. So, and, and also like, this is why you and I have harped on this so many times. Like there's no, there's no replication of this. There's no surrogate. There's no analog. There's no replacement. Right. So when we speak about the Lord's day in particular in preaching on the Lord's day, this is why we make a big deal about it. But I would like to think that what we're doing is we're following along in the example of Paul. This is the apostolic example. This is what was set forth in the early church. This is how Paul himself understood what was to be, again, the zenith. So I still feel convicted, yeah. as I understand the scriptures, that the highest place, that in other words, like you need to recognize no matter what tradition you're part of, no matter what denominational church you belong to, that every church is creating a high point in the right. worship on the Lord's day. Now, some churches, I would argue, can we just be triggering? Is that okay? Yeah, let's do it. Okay, I'll be triggering. Please trigger as many people as you can. Okay, well, let me think about that for a second. I want to make sure I can get as many then as I possibly can in this yeah. statement. So if everybody has a mountaintop, so to speak, I'm just using that as, a, as an example, as a metaphor for what I'm about to say then that means that one exists in your own service, in your own expression, in your own theology, in your own worship as it manifests on the Lord's day. 
There are some churches, like for instance, Bethel, where I think that really happens in the amalgamation and the accumulation of emotion in worship through music. Right. And then everything after that is essentially reinforcing what was experienced in worship through music. And that's just one example. So you have it. The question is, where is it? Right. And does that comport with the scriptures? Have I been too harsh, Tony? No, you tell no. Me. And I don't think you're triggering anybody. I think anybody who's honest with themselves <laughs> would affirm and would recognize that that exists, right? And, and you know, the old saying, like, we well, want to see where your priorities are. Look at your day planner and your checkbook. Well, the, yeah. the same thing exists in a, a worship service, right? You want to see where your priorities are. Slice the the amount of time that you gather for worship together. Slice that in, into percentages and which one's the highest. For mm. the Reformed, it clearly is the sermon in most right. most situations. Um, you know, if you look at, there might be more overall things during a service that are not sermon than that are. But if you look at how much each particular thing is a percentage of the service, the sermon is the single largest slice of the pie for Reformed congregations. Even I would say even most evangelical congregations that are not probably kind of the weird charismatic ones, right? Not the Bethel, Bethel, Reading, those kinds of super charismatic churches have actually gone outside of evangelicalism, I think, because one of the core features of evangelicalism is that it's word-centered. So when you get these churches that everything is about worship or, or even weird than that, these sort of like other strange expressions of worship, you know, like dance. corporate dancing or like corporate painting, some of these weird like things that corporate happened. Corporate painting? The, yeah, there was the weird things that happened like that in the emergent church where like everybody would get like a, a little An tablet easel? and they would do like drawing together. <laughs> There's just weird stuff that happens out there. In the Lutheran <laughs> uh, paradigm, that is the Lord's Supper. It may yes. not always take more time, but in terms of how they emphasize the service, <clears throat> the other thing is if you think about like you and I have talked about how like a thoughtful worship liturgy has a pinnacle of some sort. Yes, exactly. Right? You 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 know in our service um, we have the call to worship, which sort of formally kicks off the service. We try to do announcements and other things before the call to worship, right? So we do our call to worship. We have a scripture meditation that kind of sets the tone for the service. And then we do a, a worship song that tends to be more of a formal worship song. It's a hymn or a more uh, like a Getty style song. And then we, we do some prayer and then we, you know, we, that's an invocation prayer where we're kind of calling God to come and be a part of our, our congregation to come and be uh, present among us, you know, sort of convoking him and invoking him into our service. Right. And that leads up to the ser to the sermon. Right. And, and it's all driving that direction. And exactly. a thoughtful worship liturgy is going to choose songs that support the sermon. It's going to choose uh, prayers. It's going to structure prayer that supports the sermon. And then it comes back down. And, and usually that last song is a little quieter. Or if, if it was a sermon that had a lot of, of, of emphasis on triumph and victory, it might be more of a victorious song. But that song is chosen to then support the, tr the congregation transitioning out of the Lord's worship for the Lord's day service into the worship that is the rest of their life. So there's right. this, this bell curve peak yes. thing that happens. Gossian. In the Lutheran service... That bell curve, that peak happens when they do the Lord's table, right? That's how the liturgy is structured in most cases. In, in Roman Catholic services, it's the it's the convocation of the mass, the, the consecration of the elements. That's the absolute zenith because that's when God comes. 
that's when Jesus enters the room. So that's what they do, right? In these Bethel Redding sort of hyper emotional driven ones, it's the usually it's the first worship set tries to right. whip you into this frenzy. There's a short a short message usually that's very shallow. It's very performance driven. And then you go, you go, and there's some more energetic worship to see out the door. So every service has these. I, th- I think just being honest, every church has these zenith points that they, they drive towards. And and I think you know, thinking and reflecting on, you know, it came up. A question came up in one of my one of the groups I'm in on Facebook the other day. Somebody said something like they were looking for a church and they had the option of going to like a, a Anglican church or a, a Lutheran church, Missouri Synod. And the one of the downsides of a Lutheran Missouri Synod church is they won't let people who are not members of their church take communion. Well, for some of us, that seems a little strange because we're like, well, you know, like communion is for Christians. So if you're a Christian, right. then you should take communion. Well, they believe that you're really eating the body and blood of Christ, regardless of right. whether you're a Christian or not. So they right. take additional steps to fence that table that we may not feel are necessary. Because if you come to the table and you're not coming in faith, then it's just bread and bread and wine or right. bread and juice for you. It's not you're not you're not desecrating anything because it's just bread. You can't desecrate bread. It's just bread. But if you join that with faith, then you partake of the Lord in faith. So the, all of these different. This is why talking about theological differences with other branches of Christianity, or even branches of of the visible church that we might consider not to be true churches, like Roman Catholicism or Eastern Orthodoxy, talking about our theological differences with them helps to refine and clarify why it is we believe what we believe. I don't think I would have made that connection about the stricter fencing of the table in Lutheran churches or in Roman, like Roman Catholic churches, they do it for the same reason. They don't want you to desecrate the body and blood of Christ. So I wouldn't have made that connection had we not had that conversation with Chad and and Eric last week. Right, right on. So this, I hope that people will not shy away from those types of conversations or that kind of exploration because of fear that they'll somehow be challenged in maybe the way that they've been taught to think about things we should be challenged right. in the way that we're taught to think about things so that we go back to the scriptures and understand the way that things ought to really be. Yeah. If God has given us the reality of the way things are in his instruction, in the full counsel of his will as represented in the scriptures, then we have ample opportunity to study it, to understand it, and to live it out. Yeah. So it's also in a, a great way to, again, appreciate that there are many people who are trying to worship God effectively, who are in love with Jesus and interpret these things differently. And we need to ourselves reconcile with why that is. Yeah. And some of that may be that we need to be firm in our own convictions. If you're not firm in your own convictions, this is just a wonderful opportunity to listen, to study, to pray, and to process, to yeah. internalize and metabolize these things I say that because I haven't used the word metabolize in probably like 17 episodes. Yeah, it's so been a while. I'm bringing it back. You're bringing metabolize back? <laughs> yeah. Was that like a Justin Timberlake? Yeah, Q. I'm bringing metabolize <laughs> back. I, that, I don't know if that's actually the melody for that song or not. No, that was pretty good. Pretty so I, I'd like to think that... Again, Next week on our show, we're going to have Justin Timberlake. I'm just kidding. <laughs> That would, that would be pretty epic, actually. Pretty he epic. thinks he's coming on for some kind of like some kind of like like episode, like promoting his new show or his new album track. I don't know what you call it these days. And we're like, good. let's tell you about the gospel. That was good. How many listeners will we get from having Justin Timberlake on the Reform? I don't know. When we had that episode where we played a few clips from Derek Webb, it was pretty popular. So. <laughs> 
So, yeah. Yes, but we we also got called names we that did. like were amazing that I've never been called before. That I was like, how is this possible? What happened? I know. So and he wasn't even on the show. No, he wasn't. We just played clips from him and like like parsed out what he said about himself. Yes. We were honest and charitable. And he, he was like, I was like, well, I mean, I maybe you don't like the word apostatize or like apostasy, but like, is is it not accurate of you? And he's like, well, no, right. it's accurate. <laughs> so it's like, okay, <laughs> fine. <laughs> this is the joy of putting things that you say, think, and believe onto the interwebs. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I yeah. never would have interacted with Derek Webb otherwise, I suppose. So I guess that's something. Yeah, I still, I actually have some of his, I mean, now this has become like a weird Derek Webb episode. I've, I have still have some of his music, which we've talked about. Maybe we could talk about another time. It's like, how do you interpret that again in light of yeah. everything that's happened? But um, he does use the W word in one of his most, you know, famous and well-known songs, which at the time was shocking, right? Yeah. Partly because it, he used that word and it was acoustic mainly. Oh, I think yeah. that's like, you use that word in a hardcore song. People are like, okay, I see what you're saying. It's a little bit extreme, but you're screaming. So acceptable. Let, let, just to was, clarify, we're talking about the word whore, right? Because <laughs> you know, what other word did you I don't know. Like I, I was like, he used the word word. Like we've been talking about the word so much. I was like, that's not controversial. But, but I yes. Thought, I thought there was like another weird W word, like I can't think of a weird, like, offensive W word. I guess that's good. Yeah. Uh, he's, he was just paraphrasing Augustine, so it wasn't really even all that. At the time, people that's were like, true. can you believe that? I was like, I, I mean, yeah, like, that's a common Augustinian quote that the church is our mother, but she's a whore. Like, that's not. Yeah, that's fair. Or the church yeah. is a whore, but she's also our mother. Like, that's not an unusual, yes, fair. extreme thing. But yeah, that. All right. This is a whole other episode. Let's <laughs> Let's put a pin in that. Because that is just another one of those let's, evangelicals let's don't have any idea what horror. happened in their own history kind of moments. But <laughs> here's here's the thing. This was like, I mean, it's still, this is a PG podcast, but, you know, cut to some poor parent who was listening to this in their car. And all of a sudden we've said that word like four times <laughs> on the course of this like outro. Right after um, we asked for people to give us reviews, even if they're one star reviews. Awesome. Yes. Perfect planning, so, Tony. Before we say that, I want to ask, speaking of words... I think I said Zenith. You said Zenith. What, what are we going to land on here? I don't know. I is mean, a, I wait, also say bagel and thing? you say bagel. So That's how it's pronounced. No, it's, it's bagel. Not. Bagel. I don't think... What, how do you describe the dog that has like the long floppy ears that like hunts birds? A beagle, but it's not spelled the same. Not even no, close. It's, it's not. It's not. But it's like... I've never heard bagel is in like, is in like a shopping bag or is in a shopping bag. <laughs> what, what other podcasts that we know can we email to get this clarified on? Cause this is going to be away a wedge between us. I think away, away with, with words, words maybe. Yeah. No, no, it's, it's definitely not a wedge. I just heard it. I've actually heard Zenith before. I actually, I could probably look it up right now, but I, my guess is that if we go to like Miriam Webster, it's going to say that both are acceptable. I'm going to look it guess. up right now. Etymology do it. Zenith. Here we go. It's now see the thing is when you say Zenith, I do find like a connection to like Xena warrior princess. Like it yeah. sounds stronger than Zenith. I get that. So I've just heard it both ways, but this right. is like when According people say to that, Google, like, the Z, the Z E is pronounced Z E E Z Nuth. How dare you? 
Yeah, I'm just saying it's Google has the option for me to practice saying the word and it wants to use my microphone. And then I'm like, no, because then listen, you have everything. Listen, here's the thing. And I quote, how dare you, Mark Driscoll? How dare you? <laughs> how dare you? Jesse, we're totally off. You can tell we haven't recorded a real episode in a couple of weeks because I have no idea what we're even doing. Anymore. No, listen, this, this is the good stuff. I think one of the things I appreciate about us is we try to drop all of these like little quips, quotes. There are some people that like have either no idea what we're talking about or they're like, that was brilliant that you just inserted that, slipped that right in as you were yeah. into like the conversation. So if you don't know... I don't know why you're clapping. I'm talking about you or how dare you just go into YouTube and search those out. Yeah, dude, I thought he was going to die when he said that. I just like he was so <laughs> worked up and overwhelmingly like angry. It was like he he I thought his head was literally going to explode. I have a friend who regularly quotes that to me, a good friend of mine. And he always talks about how like Mark Driscoll, it looked like he was almost I mean, this with deference, almost having a stroke like his his left eye was twitching. Oh yeah, in the midst it was, of him saying that. It's one of those things where, like, looking back at it, we can all have a little bit of a chuckle at, like, "Wow, well, yeah, it was just Mark being Mark." And and in the grand scheme of Mark being Mark, that was a pretty mild Markness or Marking or whatever we want to call it. Markedness. Markedness. Uh, but yeah, at the time, if you were sitting in that crowd, oh my goodness! And, and like, because we we just we need to stop because we're just going to keep going. But, <laughs> At the time, like, can you imagine sitting in that crowd and being that guy that has to get up and go to the bathroom, like, right at that point? You'd be like, but if I get up, then it's going to look like he, like, I'm abusing my wife. Like, if I, like, if I nudge my wife to say, like, yeah, we got that thing we got to be at in a couple hours, like, right. we really should get going. Like, it looks like I'm that guy that he's screaming at. Like, there's some dude that had bad shellfish the night before. And yeah. It's like, I got to get up. I got to go. <laughs> I um I was at a conference and then I will actually end the episode. Uh, I'll exercise my co-host prerogative to just shut it down. It's I was you. at a conference. It was a choir of the fire, and uh, it was it was somebody. Well, this is way before Mark Driscoll, but the the preacher or the pastor, whoever it was that was giving the the conference lecture, he he basically was like chastising this room of like sixteen year old people for not being serious enough. Which is like, come on, it's a room of sixteen year old people. But he actually had them lock the doors so anybody who left couldn't come back in. Like you, wow. you could leave. Like the doors, you could go yeah, out, right. but you couldn't come back in. Our youth pastor had gone to the bathroom uh, <laughs> during the during the first part of this message. Like it's it's a you can, people got to go to the bathroom. It's not that big of a deal. He got locked out, so the entire youth group is stuck in the conference room with no leadership, <laughs> and our youth pastor is panicking. This is before the age of cell phones, so he has no idea what's going on. So yeah, I just how dare you? Is there's so much that comes with that. So Jesse, <laughs> until next time. When we actually have some sort of structure and closing to this, how dare you and honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Hi, what am I even doing? Love the brotherhood. <laughs> Let's try that again. Jesse, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Oh.